Welcome to Twin Peaks Cinema. Today's episode is Belladonna of Sadness, a Japanese animated film from the 70s that I'm connecting to Twin Peaks through a theme that's going to go on for three months called Traumatic Transformations. Stories about characters who uh, experience trauma, often uh, abuse, often sexual abuse, and uh, similar to Fire Walk With Me and Laura Palmer. And then the films, uh, sometimes through overt fantasy, sometimes through uh, other means, uh, take a sort of a mythological approach to it, almost, you could say. So we're going to talk about that in this episode. Uh, Before we do that, I want to mention uh, what I've been up to with my other podcasts. So on my uh, Lost in the Movies feed, I covered a couple Darren Aronofsky films in the past few weeks, uh, Requiem for a Dream and then The Wrestler. And on Patreon, I finally caught up with a lot of listener feedback that I'd gotten since uh, last August. That included somebody who had some interesting connections to draw between Sleeping Beauty and also Twin Peaks. And uh, that actually inspired me to bring uh, Belladonna of Sadness into that as well. So there's a little tiny bit of discussion on that in there. But uh, the fairy tale connections to Twin Peaks obviously made me think of this as well. And uh, for Twin Peaks Conversations, I've had a couple of those where I have the public part on YouTube and then a Patreon part, uh, often a little longer, for $5 a month patrons. And those were with uh, the authors of TV Milestones Twin Peaks, Julie Grossman and uh, Will Scheibel. I spoke to them in March, and then in early April, I spoke to Maya McBriar, who has the website Twin Peaks Fanatic and has done a lot of interesting writing on Twin Peaks. So... You can check both of those out as well. All the links are in the show notes, of course. And uh, now let's begin with the first film in the trilogy of traumatic transformations from now through June. <笑>悪魔。そう。それが俺の名だ。さあ、俺の女房。お前は何が欲しい？何でも叶えてやるぞ。何がしでかしたい？悪いことがしたいわ。何？悪いことなら。Belladonna of the Sadness is an anime feature from 1973. It's produced by Osama Tezuka, who is known as the Walt Disney of Japan, which is interesting in a few ways. So he was known as that because he was one of the innovators of manga and early animated films as well, kind of spun off from that. And he created the characters of Astro Boy and Kimba the White Lion, who were very influential and celebrated and even seen across uh, you know, the ocean in the U.S. as well. Uh, in fact, Matthew Broderick, who voiced uh, Simba in The Lion King, said that when he got the early drafts and invitation to do The Lion King, he thought it was just a straight-up adaptation of that of that Japanese cartoon that he had watched as a kid on TV. And that's actually a subject of some immense debate. 
because uh, some people feel that the film really was ripped off from that. I've never seen it, but that's, you know, a familiar controversy. The Tezuka actually did meet, uh, sorry, probably mispronouncing his name, but Tezuka probably did meet, uh, or did meet Walt Disney in the early 60s. He was invited to come to the U.S. to collaborate on a sci-fi film, which obviously never happened. And he was also invited by Stanley Kubrick to be art director for 2001 A Space Odyssey, but he wanted to focus on his own work in Japan, a studio that had begun Mushi Production. And this studio turned out these three films between the mid-60s and the early 70s called the Anime-Rama, which was this trilogy of very erotic adult anime films that were pushing the boundaries of the form in experimental directions, a lot of abstract imagery. And it's just very interesting to consider somebody who's considered the Japanese Disney to go in this direction. Now, with this film, he actually left early in the production. It was directed by Ichi Yamamoto, who also directed the other two films, which Tezuka was more heavily involved with. I think at this point, he wanted to start another studio to focus more on his manga rather than the films. So the first of the three films was A Thousand and One Nights, kind of a more, I mean... Somewhat straightforward adaptation of Aladdin and the Arabian Nights, at least compared to the other films' relationships to their source material. The next film was Cleopatra, which I looked at the plot summary of it's bizarre. It's like aliens who want to initiate something called the Cleopatra Plan. And so a bunch of uh, people in the 21st century or 20th century or whatever go back in time to try to meet and seduce Cleopatra and find out about this plan. Very strange. This film is much less comical than those first two. And from what I understand, its style is pretty different from them too. I haven't seen the other two films, but they seem to have a more, the characters have like a more rounded look, for lack of a better word, cartoonish, which was in uh, Tezuka's style. And this film is more angular, much more angular, and uses, I think a lot less actual animation in that a lot of the images are still images that the camera pans across and you kind of hear the voices it's very stylized in that sense actually parts of of the neon genesis evangelion are kind of reminiscent of this style which in that case was due to budgetary constraints at least in part as well as aesthetics not sure here i recorded this review before this part and i kept calling it belladonna of this sadness which it's all a translation of the japanese so i don't know if it matters that much but kind of funny that i kept bringing up the title and getting it wrong here this film as i mentioned very explicit it's got graphic sexual content but also kind of abstracted i'll get into that more in the review itself there's a question around is this a hentai like an actual pornographic anime cartoon there's a gag from the office where stanley says uh, it's hentai and it's art or something like that and this is something that comes up when this is discussed because it was released as like an exploitation film in the u.s it seems to be going more for a serious tragic look there isn't really that much revenge in it it's more about how she deals with the trump so i'll stop introducing it. i'll just get into the review itself i do want to mention one thing before beginning which i forgot to include which is the lead animator on it. I think he did most of the animation, Kuni Fukai. I mentioned the director and the producer, but he's worth singling out because this is just a gorgeously animated film. Uh, the whole style, the way it's done. So the story of this film is about a young couple in France, in medieval France. They're about to get married. They go to visit the Lord. And of course, you know where this is going. He ends up raping the young woman, uh, kicking the husband out and... Uh, deflowering her and giving her over to his whole court 
and they kind of have their way. And this is all shown through pretty abstracted imagery that still manages to feel explicit in a way. It's hard to describe some of what you see, but it's it's all like extremely suggestive but stylized. So nonetheless, this was an X-rated cartoon as were the other two in the series and then one of them the x rating was self-applied to like they wanted to get the pornographic market to try to earn money for their studio because it was struggling and uh, actually patrons in the u.s demanded their money back because the film wasn't actually that that pornographic the the second film in this series uh with this one i think it was actually released with i believe with an actual x rating applied by the mpaa and it was a huge disaster internationally. But it's an extremely compelling film and poignant as well. Uh, that's one of the aspects we're going to be talking about because the film just begins with that sequence, with that trauma, and the rest of it flows out from there. So the character returns to her husband. She's distraught, tormented, doesn't know what to do. He's declining at this point. He has, to a certain extent, lost his will to live. But she is fueled by this desire for some kind of what she calls it power it's not exactly like vengeance to a certain extent it's wanting to protect her husband but it's just feeling this the the overwhelming nature of this trauma and wanting somehow to compensate for it and she's visited by a demon who's this little phallic shaped thing that is telling her that he's a part of her and that he can make her more powerful and so she is slowly giving herself over to the devil, never her soul, but her body. And she becomes a figure regarded in this community as a witch. So she goes around in a green cloak and is able to help her husband, who is appointed a tax collector, and help him to collect his revenue for the Lord. So the whole time she has this ambivalent relation to this local power where the guy destroyed her life, basically, but of course she's also under his rule, and yet at the same time, she's starting to carve out her own autonomous power within this society. So he goes off to war for years. By the time he comes back, she's an extremely revered and somewhat feared figure in this village, and so she's persecuted. She runs off into the wilderness, and at this point in the film... Uh, she does give over, she gives her soul up, essentially, to the devil. And then there's an interesting twist where at this point, instead of becoming this haggard old witch in the mythological sense of it, she becomes more beautiful. She's surrounded by, like, flowers and nature and bright sunlight and everything. And the Black Plague descends upon this uh, village, and she becomes the antidote to that. She creates a cure out of the Belladonna flower and is holding these orgies that the whole town participates in. And the Lord is terrified by this, by her threat to his power, essentially. And it ends up, in the end, first offering her a share of his power, which she doesn't exactly deny, but she demands more. He says, well, I'll give you 100 acres. I'll give you a noble title. You can even be second in command next to me. What do you want? When she says the world. And he's so affronted by this that he has her executed. So she's burned at the stake at the end of the movie. Her husband finally gets the will up to try and do something, and he's killed. The village starts to rumble and protest, but they're held back by all the armed guard. And earlier in the film, they talk about how oh, you can't burn her at the stake because if you do, her spirit will contaminate the whole, it will go up in the smoke and it'll contaminate everyone and corrupt them. 
And you see a version of this in the end where all of the faces of the women watching her become her face. And then the film shows the French Revolution, talks about how women led that. This movie is attributed to the book um, by uh, Jules Michelet from the 19th century historian called Satanism and Witchcraft, or Le Sorcier, which is a basically a reimagining of the legends of witchcraft and the persecution of witches as a pagan religion that was actually somewhat consciously developed in resistance to the existing authority of the church and the state in these times and their repression. And it's considered to be somewhat ahistorical by later generations of historians, but very thought-provoking nonetheless, and it's reimagining of this, almost in a way what Oliver Stone would call a counter-mythology to the existing mythology. Now, that, as I understand it, is, it's not like a story, that book, but they've created a story out of it with this, and also taken parts of the Joan of Arc story, and, uh, you know, obviously the character's name Jean, she's French, she has these kind of visions and experiences and becomes this powerful figure, so there's, and is burned at the stake, so there's all of that there, obviously. And the connection that I want to draw to Twin Peaks should be pretty obvious at this point, is to Laura Palmer, it's to Firewalk With Me, but it's actually particularly to The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, the book written by Jennifer Lynch in the form of Laura telling the story of her teenage years, her sexual awakening, her abuse, trying to figure out who she is, the torment of Bob. And that aspect of it is just a through line through this film that then kind of goes in interesting different directions. The sequence where she's first visited by this demon, he tells her that, she's a part of, or he's a part of her. She says, are you the devil? And he says, I am you. And he's telling her that it's this, it's this sort of shifting back and forth between trying to seduce her and say, well, this is something that will give you power. This is good. I'm just a part of you. It's natural. It's obviously to a certain extent, a manifestation of her own sexual feelings, but the fact that it was triggered and brought on by this horrible, traumatic, violent experience of a powerful person abusing her colors the whole thing with an ambivalence where it feels like it can go and often is a fusion of these two elements of this kind of wild loss of control, which could be, and, and discovery of a kind of control, which could be liberating on the one hand, and this feeling of submission and sinfulness and dirtiness and darkness. She talks about the darkness is burning, that it invited and seduced me. And of course, this just calls to mind so many David Lynch lines of dialogue, so many lines in his in his songs with Julie Cruz, all of that conceptual stuff. So there's so much of that going on here in this movie. What's interesting is, uh, well, there's a few things. So one is the reason this reminds me more in a way of The Secret Diary than of Firewalk With Me is that in Firewalk With Me, Bob is very wrapped up with Leland. And certainly that's a legacy from the show. And he's this compelling way to look at this abusive figure and see a part that is spurring abuse on, a part that is almost a denial and evasion of the abuse that's happening, but it's very much on the part of the abuser. Now, there is also a very strong thread in Firewalk With Me of Bob as something that Laura herself is dealing with, separate from her father, of her, it being a manifestation of her own sort of uneasiness in the way that her her this time where she would be having 
the sexual awakening anyways is colored by the abuse that's also happening. So these two things can't be separated out in a neat way. And that in the secret diary is really the whole through line of Bob in that we Leland's hardly a character in it. All of the stuff we get with Bob is like him writing in her diary, feeling like he's this separate thing, but he's also a part of her that she can't totally deny. And it's something she wants to beat down within herself. And in Belladonna of the sadness, it's not as psychological in a way. It's much more archetypal, allegorical, uh, iconographic, whatever term you want to apply, abstracted. You know, the character is not like this concrete, everyday character in the way that Laura is. Although I do still feel there's um, there's like a powerful aspect to her. Just I think through the I think through the style of the film in a way more than the content. Uh, it's so expressive and it sweeps you up in this flow of images. And sound as well. I mean, it's basically a musical. Most of the time, there's some sort of song playing. There's these very poetic lyrics. One of the ones that that stuck out to me was when she's first singing, right? Be, I think right before the demon comes to her about a creaking hinge of rusted hope. It's a film which is rich with psychological readings and resonance, but they're not foregrounded in a way, which, you know, I'm thinking this through in real time. In a way, I would say the same thing of Firewalk Me. I don't think Lynch is very consciously psychological, but the fact that uh, that is a character who you're sticking with through moment to moment in her day-to-day life for these several days with a human live actress playing the part in front of you, it, it gives it a different tinge than the stylized figure in Belladonna of the Sadness. So, you know, certainly people have decried the film as saying that it's too misogynist or exploitative. You have a very voluptuous stylized figure, very Art Nouveau, could be seen as just this manifestation of the Madonna whore division in a very reductive way. But I don't know if I'm mounting this great defense of the film here, but I I, I do feel like there's something more. It felt a lot richer than it could have been. And just as Bob is not satisfied to just torment Laura, he wants her to give in to him. So this demon does uh, as well in Belladonna of Sadness. And of course, as I said, what's interesting in this film is eventually she's out in the wilderness, out in this desert, this kind of wasteland, and the creature blooms up before her, almost like a kind of atomic explosion, which certainly brought Twin Peaks to mind and is interesting given the Japanese context. He's gotten bigger and bigger throughout the film. He starts very, very small and tiny and uh, is, you know, kind of emboldened by her embrace of his power. As she gives her soul over to him, she actually is liberated. I'm fascinated by this aspect of the movie and how it depicts it because I don't feel we're led up to that point to think that it's something that could be misunderstood. But I suppose the the justification you could make of it is that whole time it really is her, it is a part of her, and the negative aspects where it seems like, you know, this demon is assaulting her as well is her own guilt blossoming and manifesting through it. And when she's able to dispatch with that, then she really does become liberated in a way. There's an interesting article about this actually on 25 Years Later, which is the started as a Twin Peaks site. Now it's more generally a film TV site. They don't talk much about the comparison to Twin Peaks, but just talking about this film 
in light of Gnosticism. And it's a, it's a bit of an abstract piece itself, so you can read it and see what you get from it. But it talks about the goddess Sophia, which I think people have also drawn comparisons to with Laura, and particularly how she's used in The Return. And that actually brings us to another aspect of this film and its connection to uh, Twin Peaks, which is through season three and the way they take Laura, who starts as this ordinary girl suffering a horrible trauma in her life and trying to figure out into almost this kind of goddess figure where they're sending her down from above from the fireman's palace. And certainly uh, Jean becomes that character in this film as well. Like the second half of it or the last third or whatever it is, she's a witch, but she's more of a goddess whose power is a threat to the material power of the Lord. Now, of course, depending how you read the chronology of Twin Peaks and The Return and Part 8 in, in particular, where uh, the firemen and Senorita Dido send down this little globe or this little ball of Lara, basically. Orb, that's the word I was looking for. They send this orb of Lara down to Earth, and there's the sense of, oh, she was always a goddess. She was some spiritual figure they sent down to fight evil. And I suppose that's true. I think maybe the most compelling way to read Twin Peaks is more the way it was created than the supposed order in which it unfolds. So where Firewalk with me is a kind of correction in a way to the series and so forth. And in that sense, it feels like this moment is a reflection of what and who Lara became as she transcended, as she became this character who went through this trauma. So even though it's supposedly 1948 or whatever, but it's hard to read Time in the Lodge World that way anyways. Point being, I feel like there's a trajectory of Lara in Twin Peaks, which feels a lot like the trajectory of Jean in this film. Some other connections between the two works, particularly Part 8 and The Return, is that desert location, as I mentioned, where... Sean is forced to run out into after she runs through the woods, also very Twin Peaksian. And the little demon creature, especially when it first appears, actually looks kind of like the, it has this weird face, sort of like the frog bug in a way that we see in The Return. And there's also a whirlpool-like cloud formation kind of thing in the sky that looks like what happens when the zones appear in The Return. We see that in that desert sequence there. And speaking of the whole atomic bomb comparison, the sequence in which the plague descends on the village, which is very interesting to watch in the time of a coronavirus, you see these personified bacteria with these mouths opening and this cloud whirring activity descending and people rushing about feels very much like the atomic bomb sequence. It's, it's a great, great sequence in this film and recalls really one of the best sequences in Twin Peaks. And other than that, I, I think it's really mostly the Laura Jean comparison and the Bob Demon comparison that stick out to me. And then the way that they interestingly diverge, which is, it's, it's hard to imagine any version of Twin Peaks where Laura gives in to Bob and somehow that ends up being a good thing. Like Lynch has his ambiguities, he has his dualities, but he does also seem to have a straightforward sense of good and evil, I think. I think his richest work shows the complications of how they intertwine, but I don't think he ever really pushes towards or hints at the idea that, well, maybe what we think is evil is actually good. He doesn't really seem to go there, whereas this film kind of does in a way. Uh, although again, I think that's somewhat ambiguous. But Besides that main through line, there's little things here and there. There's this black and white checkered imagery that appears a few times when she's first seized by the Lord and his minions. And then later a few times when she's going through a traumatic break, we see that imagery whirling around, which evokes the idea that I always liked of the Red Room as an outgrowth. I mean, in a way that Twin Peaks in general is an outgrowth of Laura and her trauma 
and and how that's put into some sort of concrete imagery. And there's also one other thing worth noting, which does not, I don't think it relates to Twin Peaks in any way, but uh, when she is, when she gives her soul to the, to the devil, there's this whirlwind of modern imagery in the midst of this medieval story of like, it's jazz and cars and TVs and cowboys on TV. And it looks straight out of Yellow Submarine. It's like a three or four minute montage. I mean, if you can look some of this stuff up online, not safe for work, obviously. And, you know, this is like I said, it's a very, it's like a very graphic and explicit film without usually being, I mean, I don't know. There's definitely times where it's like the abstract imagery just forms into what is straightforwardly a penis it's not that abstract but uh it's very bizarre very visionary it was it was a trip <laughs> to watch this and i had no idea what i was getting into i had recorded it on uh, turner classic movies and uh was scrolling through titles looking for something that could be uh, discussed as twin peak cinema and this subject sounded similar the character who's now cast from the town just from the brief summary and how she is you know gives her soul to the devil it says to get revenge which she never really quite gets revenge in this which is interesting uh, even though the powers are deeply threatened by her she never you know i almost didn't understand at the end of it with all of the power she has why she ends up almost just kind of going into his realm letting him arrest her, put her in chains. And it's like for all the power she had, you'd think there would be something else, but there is something kind of poetically resonant about this idea of she has all this power in one area, but no power in another. Finally, to close on, I was definitely struck by what Satan says to her right before she gives in, where he says, I have no need for puny souls who would throw themselves at my feet. My lust hungers for souls crushed under the weight of despair, driven to cursing God, mad for vengeance. And that certainly is a very Bob-like thing to say. And again, it suggests to me almost this strange idea of the film being one thing until she goes over to Satan and it becomes something else where everything that we've been led to believe up to that point is is not quite how it unfolds. And she's she's perplexed by this as well. She says, well, I thought I would be aged and cast aside and cast into hell and cast into flames, but by submitting, I'm now, everything is beautiful and I feel younger and more alive and happier and richer. So it's like going through the looking glass in a way. And you almost wonder as with Mulholland Drive, like which side in a way is the real side? Is this now the illusion that she's in having embraced the sin or was the other fearful mode that she was in before? Was that the illusion? So I don't know. It's an interesting element to it that is in some ways very similar to Lynch and Peaks, in other ways radically different. That's it for this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any thoughts on this film or any of the other films discussed, even if they were discussed a while ago, a year or more ago, uh, please let me know, and uh, I'll share your listener feedback on upcoming episodes. Next month, I'm going to share what is probably one of my favorite uh, Twin Peaks cinema uh, podcast that I've recorded. This was released for patrons only a few months ago, and I wanted to bring it out for the public now because it's the t- film's 25th anniversary uh, coming up in May, uh, around the same time that Firewalk With Me is celebrating its 30th anniversary. This is one of the longer Twin Peaks cinema reviews as well, so there's just a lot to dig into and discuss. So here is a uh, preview of that 
the sweet hereafter. It's dull in our town since my playmates left. I can't forget that I'm bereft of all the pleasant sights they see, which the piper also promised me.